Well, is the government a good thing or is the government a bad thing? Well, it kind of depends, doesn't it? Or maybe it's just a thing. When you turn on the faucet in your kitchen, you get cold, clean, running water coming out. That's a good thing. But if it smells like sulfur or something that the government hasn't taken out of there, well, then we think that's a bad thing. If they fix the potholes on your street, that's a good thing. If they tear up your whole street for several months, <laughs> then that's a bad thing. When there's too much government intrusion, we think that's a bad thing. But when an intruder comes into our yard in the middle of the night and you call 911 and the police officer comes into your yard, that's a good thing. If I want to pour concrete for a new carport on my house and I find out the zoning ordinance says I have to move it 12 inches to the west, well, I don't like that. But when my neighbor puts up his fence on my side of the property and he takes a whole row of trees that belong to me, and the city engineer tells him he has to get a survey, and once he does that, he moves the fence back onto his property and I get all my trees back. This really happened to us in one place we lived. Well, that was a good thing. When our country was attacked by Pearl Harbor and the government mobilized the military and the entire industrial complex of the country to fight the Axis powers of Nazi Germany, Italy, and Japan and put restrictions on what we could buy and sell, and told us what they could manufacture, what people could manufacture and not manufacture, and in some regards told people where they could go and not go. Well, that's one thing. But what about when we are attacked by the coronavirus and the government places restrictions on us? Depending on what you think of government, you might be for big government or you might be for limited government. There are anarchists in our country which are for no government. President Ronald Reagan said, the most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And sometimes we feel like that. So, but if you have your Bible, please turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13, at the first verse. Verse 1 of the 13th chapter of Romans. Several weeks ago, we completed our study of Romans chapter 12. And as I was studying, preparing to move on to Romans 13, the coronavirus struck. And the messages then took a very marked turn for a few weeks. But in our study this morning, we come back to the book of Romans. Because here in Romans chapter 13, we see the Christian's responsibility to government. We also see why government is established and why it is necessary. And we see what God's purpose is for government. And we see God's intended role for government. What should it do? What should it provide? What's, what's the purpose? And we're not going to hurry through this passage in a Sunday or two. Maybe we'll do it in two Sundays. We will see. Because it speaks directly to many of the concerns and questions that many of us have today. What is the government's responsibility? Or what is the Christian's responsibility to government? And what is the government's obligation to its citizens? Verse 1 of Romans chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed, those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise 
from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we sit in our homes this morning, literally under government restrictions, I pray that you'll speak to our minds. I pray that you'll comfort our hearts. Lord, these are horribly difficult times. And life and death decisions are being made every moment in our country and around the world. Father, I pray that you would give our leaders in this country your wisdom that is from above. We pray for the scientists, for the researchers, and others who are developing treatments and vaccines. Give them the knowledge that they need. We pray for the protection of nurses and doctors, our medical personnel, who are courageously fighting this deadly battle. And Father, we pray also that you would give us understanding and insight from your word that will guide us to make our own personal decisions, that we might walk in your will in all that we say and do. And for this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians at Rome he, and said, Be in subjection to the governing authorities. He wrote to those who were under the domination of a totalitarian government. He was saying, be in subjection to a totalitarian government. When Caesar Augustus came into power, the Roman Senate declared that he was emperor for life. And they worshipped him as a god who had total and utter power. Not only did the buck stop there, everything started there with Caesar. And the same power and worship was given to every Caesar that followed, including the insane Nero who ruled when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. Now the Christians at Rome and the Lord Jesus Christ himself were born into societies where political corruption and autocratic rule was common. There were, there were merciless tyrants, there were murderous dictators, and they were, they were everywhere. They were vassal kings whom the Romans allowed to rule their own regions as long as they paid tribute, taxes, and homage to Caesar, and as long as they kept the peace for Rome's sake. And one of these murderous tyrants was King Herod. You've heard of him. He ordered the slaughter of innocent babies in Bethlehem, and he did that with absolute impunity. By some estimates, the Roman Empire had three slaves for every free person. And most of the slaves, or many of the slaves, were those who had been conquered and taken into slavery. And like other conquered peoples, the Jews at the time were little more than Roman chattel, an underprivileged and oppressed minority. They had no voice in government, little recourse for injustices. Consequently, many reactionary Jews were in constant rebellion against Rome. You might remember a man named in the Bible by the name of Barabbas. Remember him? Barabbas had committed murder and insurrection. He was a terrorist. 
And when the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, was looking for a way to release Jesus, he gave the crowd a choice to release either Barabbas or Jesus, one or the other. Pilate probably thought that they would say, let Jesus go, and that would have got him off the hook, but the crowd shouted, Barabbas, Barabbas. He was one of their heroes. But if we put the question to the floor, was the Roman government a good thing or a bad thing? We can point to countless tyrannies, cruelties, and evils perpetrated in the name of Rome. But at the same time, Rome served God's purposes in his providence and in his plan. You see, the Lord Jesus was born into a world where even the Jews were permitted a remarkable degree of religious freedom. At the time of Christ, they were not required to worship Caesar or any pagan deity. They were free to maintain their priesthood and their temple worship and to support their religious institutions by offerings. And at the same time, there was what was called the Pax Romana, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, in which there was unprecedented peace and prosperity in the entire Roman Empire, which spanned pretty much the whole known world at the time. People were generally safe. They were generally secure in their homes and when they traveled. And the government generally maintained law, order, and stability. To break the law was to bring down the entire wrath of Rome, the mighty empire, uh, which wielded the sword, which means uh, execution and those kind of things. And, and often execution was by crucifixion. There was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, but that afforded the Christians, whom the Romans considered to be Jews, the same religious freedoms given to the Jews. Rome allowed the early Christians to worship, to serve, to gather together, and enjoy what we call religious freedom. Now, all that would change in 64 AD when Nero blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. But initially, the severe persecution faced by the early Christians didn't come from the Roman government. And along with the Pax Romana, there was a system of Roman roads. The Roman roads built all across the empire. The roads were covered with stone and brick pavers. They were first, first built by Alexander the Great to support the supply of his massive army that conquered the known world. Then the Romans vastly increased and expanded the road system, the highway system, for commerce, for, tri for travel. And the Roman peace and the Roman roads opened the door for the Christians to take the gospel to the whole world. The fourth verse of the fourth chapter of Galatians says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son born of a woman. In the fullness of time, that means at the perfect time, in God's timing, Jesus came into the world to die on a Roman cross and save us from our sins. The time, the place, the circumstances, the government, Rome and all of that, all of that was in God's perfect timing for the promulgation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was peace and there were roads, and the apostles and other missionaries took full advantages of it. Now when we come to verse 1 of Romans chapter 13, I want us to first consider the second part of the first verse. End of verse 1. It says, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. You see, this is something that Pontius Pilate didn't understand. 
when, when Jesus stood before him waiting for sentencing. Pilate thought that his authority was derived from Rome, from Caesar himself. After all, Pontius Pilate had been personally appointed by Caesar Tiberius. Pilate only answered to Caesar, and everybody else in Judea and that part of the world answered to Pilate. So when Jesus stood before Pilate wearing the crown of thorns and bearing the bloody gashes of the whippings and scourging, Pilate asked Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. That was a, a fulfillment of prophecy, that he would stand silent. But uh, Pilate finally said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Now get this. Listen to Jesus' answer. Jesus answered, You have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. All authority comes from God. God is the source of all authority. Pilate had been given what authority he had from God. No matter what form it takes, no human government in history, in any place on earth, among any people on the earth, at any level of society has ever existed or will ever exist from, apart from God's sovereign authority. And this is true at every level. Whether it's the police officer that responds to your call or your second grade teacher. There is no authority except from God and those which are established by God. The word translated established is the Greek word tasso, T-A-S-S-O. It means to put into place, to appoint, to arrange. Tasso means to appoint or establish to an office here. When I served on the zoning commission, I was appointed by the mayor of Emmett, but his authority and my very limited authority came from God. And if it wasn't for God's establishment, neither one of us would have been put into that place of authority. Please turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, the 19th verse. Daniel chapter 2, verse 19. You might remember that when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had a dream, he couldn't remember what that dream was, but it greatly troubled him. And so he asked for the wise men, the conjurers, the sorcerers, all these kind of people in his realm to give him an interpretation of the dream. And they said they couldn't do that without knowing what the dream was. So the king was outraged and ordered all the wise men of the realm to be slain. Now, those wise men included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and some others that uh, were on that execution list. And so Daniel and his friends prayed to God. And in a night vision, God gave Daniel the dream and the interpretation. Verse 19 of Daniel chapter 2. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now listen to Daniel's worship here, what he says to God, how he praises God. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. Literally, he sets up kings and he removes kings. 
He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is God who removes kings. It is God who sets up kings. It is God who gives them all their authority comes from God. All authority eventually, all authority comes from God. It is God who put Nebuchadnezzar in place as a king. And later Daniel will declare to King Nebuchadnezzar directly in verse 17 of Daniel chapter 4, Daniel says to the king, it is the most high, that is God, the most high God who is ruler over all the realm of mankind and he, God, bestows it on whom he wishes. In all the history of mankind, there's not been a ruler, there's not been a king, there's not been a dictator, there's not been a president who was not established in that authority by God. Now, some people want to go far to say that, the, that God, saying that God established or ordained authority means that, that he didn't put in place tyrants like Nero. Or what about Hitler? What about Saddam Hussein? So they say that God ordained the institution of government not the individual rulers. But, but that is a weak problem or a weak attempt to dodge a problem that Scripture repeatedly affirms. For example, there was wicked Jeroboam, the first uh, king of the, actually the second king of the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And, and Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who had succeeded and taken over from Solomon after his death. And, and Jeroboam re, rebelled, and he set up false gods and two false worship centers in Samaria. He went so far as to take a golden calf, a Baal, idol, and put it in these worship centers in Samaria and said to the people in Samaria, oh, now you don't have to go down to Jerusalem to worship because now we have the gods here that brought you out of Egypt. It was the most evil thing in the world. Yet his rebellion and kingdom was, according to 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 15, a turn of events from the Lord. It came from the Lord God. And it says to establish his prophecy through Ahijah. You see, Ahijah the prophet had told King Solomon that on account of Solomon's sin of taking foreign wives who sacrificed to their idols, to their gods in the palace, that the kingdom would be torn from Solomon and divided at his death. And God was fulfilling his purposes through the establishment of the wicked Jeroboam as king of the northern kingdom. You'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar, his army destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, slaughtered many Jewish people, carried most of the survivors, including Daniel and his friends, to Babylon. But yet, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. His servant. And God says that he gave all of the land he conquered into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God can and does establish a ruler over people like Nebuchadnezzar to judge a people, to carry out the judgment of God, to judge them. God established and used Nebuchadnezzar as his judgment of the people of Israel. But there's another instance where God established a ruler to bless a people. His name was Cyrus. In the case of Cyrus, king of Persia, he allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem in fulfillment of prophecy after 70 years in exile. And now that we have an understanding of what it means that there is no authority except from God, now we can go back to 
verse 1 of Romans chapter 13. The first verse, the 13th chapter of Romans. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Notice that word subjection. The word subjection, the translated word there, is two words put together. It is hupotasso. Remember, tasso, we've already talked about that. Tasso means to, to establish, to set up, to, to appoint. This is hupotasso. Hupo means under, under, hupotasso. So this means to arrange, to appoint in a way to arrange under or to rank under. To be in subjection or to be arranged under hupotasso, the governing authorities. They are appointed and tasso established by God and we are arranged under their authority. Now the apostle Peter tells us the same thing as Paul does over in 1 Peter chapter 2, the 13th verse. The 13th verse of 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and praise of those who do right. For what? For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. To submit is to recognize one subordinated place in a hierarchy. To acknowledge as a general rule that certain people and certain institutions have authority over us. So the question is, what happens if we don't submit? What happens if we resist authority? And for that we go back to Romans chapter 13 again, the second verse. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. The logical ramification is simple. Because civil government as an institution is instituted by God, set up by God. To rebel against it is to rebel against the God who established it. In his commentary on Romans, the 19th century Scottish evangelist Robert Haldane wrote, The people of God then ought to consider resistance to the government under which they live as a very awful crime, even as resistance to God himself. But the question is, can you disobey the government and still be in submission to it? Can you see what I'm getting at? What if what the government requires is just plain wrong or tells you to do something that you know is wrong? Can you still be in submission to the government and disobey? And the answer to that is yes, but only in certain exceptional circumstances. There are two biblical legitimate reasons to disobey the government authorities. And we're going to look at examples from God's words for both of these. The only two reasons to disobey authorities is, number one, they command you to do something that is in disobedience to God's word. They command you to do something that's in disobedience to God's word. And number two, they try to prevent you from obeying God's word. So they prevent you from obeying God's word. Now that's it. That's the only two reasons. 
You'd be hard-pressed to find a legitimate reason in the Bible for disobedience related to one's personal rights being violated, for insurrection, for rebellion. In fact, you won't find that in the Bible at all. And so the first reason to disobey the authorities is they command you to do something that's in disobedience to God's word. They command you to do something that's disobedience to God's word. So turn back to the book of Daniel again. This time to Daniel chapter 3, the 13th verse. Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. In the third chapter of Daniel, we have that familiar story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace because they would not bow down and worship the towering golden image of King Nebuchadnezzar that had been set up out in the desert. And we pick it up in verse 13 of Daniel chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I set up? Now if you are ready... At the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and bagpipe and, all, bagpipe and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? I always like it the way these guys tempt and test God when they say these things. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, you do not need, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. They disobeyed Nebuchadnezzar because he commanded them to do something that was in disobedience to God's word. You shall worship the Lord your God only and him shall you serve. I am the Lord God and you shall have no other graven images before me. And they submitted themselves to the consequences. That's submission. Submission is the willingness to suffer the consequences of whatever the disobedience is. There are other examples in the Bible, such as the Hebrew midwives. They disobeyed Pharaoh's command to kill the boy babies. Pharaoh thought that uh, the Hebrews were going to take over population-wise and become powerful and rebel against their, their slavery. And so Pharaoh said to the midwives, all the midwives in the realm, you know, when the baby is born, if it's a girl, let it live. If it's a boy, kill it. And then... Since they didn't do that, they had to stand before Pharaoh and explain themselves. And so they lied to Pharaoh. Is that the right thing to do? So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, I, I really like this, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get there. I think that was a lie. It was definitely a lie. But the text goes on to describe how God blessed the Hebrew midwives, many of them who had been barren to this point, and they were able to have children. 
So the first biblical legitimate reason to disobey the authorities is when they command you to do something that is in disobedience to God and his word. The second and the only other reason to disobey the authorities is when they try to prevent you from obeying God's word. For example of this, turn over to the book of Acts, the book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 4, verse 13. In the fourth chapter of Acts, after healing a lame man, Peter and John have been arrested for teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they appear before the Jewish council, and Peter and John once again proclaim the gospel to the council. And we pick it up in verse 13 of Acts chapter 4. Speaking of the council, Now as they observed the confidence in Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. And so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in the name of Jesus, in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. We'll look at verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When ordered to stop speaking about Jesus, they disobeyed the authorities. And they went on to speak about Jesus and speak about Jesus. And for another example, we turn to the book of Daniel once again. This time to Daniel chapter 6, verse 6. Sixth chapter of Daniel, the sixth verse. This is the familiar account when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. This example fits both reasons for disobeying the authorities. Daniel is told by decree, by law, that he could only pray to King Darius for a certain amount of time, I believe it was 30 days or something like that, that he could only pray to King Darius, can't pray to anybody else. And then he was ordered to do something that God's word had commanded Daniel not to do. And so by default, Daniel could not pray to his God, to the Lord God, something that God wants us to do. Now the whole scheme here is to get rid of Daniel, to get rid of him, Since the other officials couldn't find any fault with Daniel in the way that Daniel governed, and he was one of three commissioners, Daniel was one of three commissioners over the whole Persian Empire, one of three, one of three that answered directly to King King Darius. And, And so the others, because they were jealous or whatever the reason was, they schemed to get rid of Daniel on religious grounds. And we pick it up in verse 6 of Daniel chapter 6. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. Then they say, all the commissioners of the kingdom. Well, that's a lie because Daniel was a commissioner. There's only two others. 
but all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days, shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Murds and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. You probably know the rest of the story. Uh, they took the, Daniel before the king. They arrested him. The king couldn't change the law that he had made, but he was very sorry that he had made that. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. God shut the mouths of the lions, and King Darius recognized at that point that God was God. But how do we apply this today? In a day when we have the closing of our churches, we have stay-at-home restrictions and guidelines, and some people feel that their right of peaceable assembly and freedom of religion has been violated. I'm going to put these questions to an expert on what it means to serve and worship God during the bubonic plague. It was August of 1527. And the bubonic plague had come to Wittenberg, Germany. And everyone who could get out of the village was getting out. The elector of Saxony, John the Steadfast, ordered the famous professor and reformer Martin Luther to leave. They were good friends. He was the elector. He was the authority. He said, Martin, you've got to leave. You must leave. Take your family and go. And Luther refused. He disobeyed the authority. And along with his pregnant wife, Katharina, Luther stayed in Wittenberg, opening his house as a ward to the sick. Now, particularly virulent and awful disease, the bubonic plague killed its victims quickly and painfully, causing high fevers and large weeping boils. It was a highly contagious disease and had an astronomic mortality rate. In fact, this black death in 1347 struck Europe, killing an estimated 60% of its population. It struck England again, or London again, in 1663, and it killed maybe three-fourths of the population of London. Now, they didn't know how the disease was spread, they didn't know something about uh, how droplets spread or viruses or anything like that, but they knew that it had something to do with coming in contact with the sick. And the government command was flee. Get out of, these, get out of the cities. Shops were closed. The streets were empty. People were either self-isolating or getting out of the city. Other pastors asked Luther if it was the right thing to do, to get out. And Luther explained his view that it was not necessarily wrong to flee from death, as indeed King David had fled from both Saul and Absalom. But, he said, 
But, he said, one's community and family responsibilities first must be considered. Consider your family responsibilities, consider your personal and, and community responsibilities. And he said, in order to leave, one was required to make sure that his neighbors were cared for. So he wrote, no one should dare leave his neighbor unless there are others who will care, take care of the sick in their stead and nurse them. We are bound to each other in such a way that no one may forsake the other in his distress, but is obliged to assist and help him as he himself would like to be helped. Martin Luther was correct. Of course, our situation is different. But when he said we are bound together, as the term community spread makes clear, the actions and the choices we make have an impact on others. In this vein, Luther emphasized the importance of prevention. It's remarkably similar to the CDC guidelines today. He urged people to take medicine, to disinfect their homes, and to avoid people in places so as not to spread the disease. And of course, the admonition to avoid people and places applied only if assistance was not needed. Luther also wrote about the specific responsibility of, a, of public officials in the time of crisis. He said, these officials are to remain on duty in the areas affected by the plague. The, authorities were meant to be, well, the authority was meant to be exercised in an effort to protect and preserve their communities. That is the God-given role of the authorities, to protect and preserve their communities. Now, for Luther, public service was just that, service. Now, our situation is different today. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we are still called of God to be servants of God, to minister and serve other people, to serve others, to make sure our neighbors are cared for. And that care certainly includes not affecting somebody else on account of our own foolishness, based on our rights, and what we think our rights are, and we do not do what is right because of our reluctance to take the health of others seriously. It was so simple for Martin Luther to take reasonable, preventable steps and love our neighbors and to trust God. I want to read a Facebook post that my wife Jan posted this last week on Facebook about COVID-19. And it speaks directly to what our application is here today. She wrote, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said of suffering, quote, It is infinitely easier to suffer in obedience to a human command than in the freedom of one's own responsibility. It is infinitely easier to suffer with others than to suffer alone. It is infinitely easier to suffer publicly and honorably than apart and ignominiously. Ignominiously means humiliating in disgrace. It is infinitely easier to suffer through staking one's life than to suffer spiritually. Christ suffered as a free man alone, apart, and in ignominy, in body and spirit, and since then many Christians have suffered with him. Unquote. Jan writes, I am grieved that I see some of my brothers and sisters in Christ in this country taking up the picket sign rather than the cross. 
shouting for their rights, unwilling that they should suffer loss so that others might live. They angrily fling statistics that prove it's not as bad as was promised because fewer people have died because the mitigation strategies are working. Must we throw it all to the wind to see the full force of horror and death possible? Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. John 15, 13 through 14. It was the Pharisees who tried to politicize the cross, but Christ came to suffer and die for the sins of the whole world. We are being asked to take up our cross daily and follow him. When we pick up the cross, where are we going with it? Are we going to protest having to suffer that we might have our own way? Or are we going to suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him? Romans 8, 17. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2, 21. We can do all these things, stay at home, allow a job to be put at risk, have to accept assistance or suffer humiliation without insisting on anything for ourselves. God is teaching us to love the whole world and he wants to love the world through us. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, even today as we go from wherever we are worshiping today, Lord, and, and go about our, our daily routine of self-isolating and social distancing and what it is, Father, I, I pray that you would give to each one of us a loving servant's heart. Father, that we will, in every instance, put others and their health and their situation before ourselves. Make us true servants of the living God who we praise and worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.